When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 38, Made in Italy. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. The clothes make the man. Once more, the clothes make the man. This proverb is unattributed, I'll say, but that's only because it's attributed to so many people. If you do a quick Google search, the clothes make the man is tied to half a dozen different philosophers and theologians. Big names, too. Many people, for thousands of years, have been meditating on the connection between human personhood and human dress. The clothes make the man is so old as an idea, as a claim, it cannot help being extremely offensive to modern ears. Any idea this old is bound to be uh, discarded and debunked by anyone with an iPhone. If you say the clothes make the man and someone wants to respond in disagreement with another proverb, they're probably going to throw this at you. Well, you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a book by its cover is the proverb that supposedly defeats absolutely every claim that appearance is important. And if you, if you ever 
say in the presence of modern men, if you ever say that appearance counts, if you ever suggest that things are what they look like, if you ever suggest that someone is as dumb as they look, someone's going to say to you, well, you can't judge a book by its cover. Now, here's the thing about you can't judge a book by its cover. First, I want to say that this is a distinctly modern-sounding proverb. I have not done any research into you can't judge a book by its cover, but it can't be that old. Books haven't had lousy covers for very long. This proverb could only emerge in a society uh, that was constantly producing books with lousy covers. Otherwise, there would be no need for it. You can't judge a book by its cover. Um, doesn't make any sense if books all have handsome leather covers. It's only in an era uh, with ugly dust jackets and awfully illustrated, um, awfully illustrated covers that you would need to insist that maybe there's a good story underneath, uh, you know, underneath this Hardy Boys-esque cover, some kind of, you know, 1950s cartoonish-looking image of two square-jawed boys holding flashlights. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's the Divine Comedy under there or something as good as, I know the cover's not great, but, you know, the author didn't insist on the cover. That was the publisher. You could come up with all kinds of ways of justifying reading a book with a terrible cover. Now, if you can't judge a book by its cover means some good books have bad covers, well, of course. Uh, as a teacher in a classical school, a classical school that sometimes purchases Dover Thrift editions for students to use, I know that great books have lousy covers. Sometimes. However, you can't judge a book by its cover is not really a proverb you can live by. It's not a way of interpreting the world on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Because you can't judge a book by its cover means you have to search out the appearance of all things before you make any sort of judgment about them. And life is just not long enough for that. We live by appearances because most of the time there is a real authentic connection between the inside of a thing and the outside of a thing. Between that thing's spirituality and its materiality, between its soul and its substance. Now, appearances can be deceiving, but they're usually not. Appearances can be deceiving, but you can't drive to the grocery store telling yourself that. Because if, if you try to drive to the grocery store living as though appearances can be deceiving, well, first thing you're going to have to do is drive to the gas station. Because even though the fuel gauge says that it's half full, well, appearances can be deceiving. The tires on your car look as though they're full, but appearances can be deceiving. Better check all of them. Make sure the pressure's good. The other people driving on the road look competent enough, but appearances can be deceiving. Better check. Make sure that all of them are not drunk, not high, not 13. I, it looks like I live in a well-governed society where people fear the law 
and would not drive if they were inebriated or incompetent to do so, but appearances can be deceiving. If you live your life as though most appearances are deceiving until they've been investigated, you'll just spend your entire life investigating. And you'll have to investigate the investigation. At some point, you have to trust that things are what they look like and be willing to live with the consequences when you're wrong. So the clothes make the man. It's possible to steal a pilot's uniform, but still the clothes make the man. So I puzzled over this proverb for a very long time. Uh, I think that there are two or three scrapped attempts in my hard drive somewhere to do a whole show on the clothes make the man. It seems so intuitive to me. It seems so obvious to me that I couldn't find enough to say about it several times. I think that's because I was approaching the proverb incorrectly. And the longer I thought about it, the more... I've been puzzling over this for months now. Clothes make the man. Sounds true, but why? I think that some of my misunderstanding of this proverb for a long time stemmed from my interpretation of the word make, clothes make the man. And there are greater and lesser ways of interpreting the word make, like depending on how you could assign the word make in the proverb, a lot of power or a little power. So the clothes make the man, the word make, we could use the word make in the same way that we say a great bottle of wine really makes a dinner. Which is to say, a great bottle of wine puts the finishing touches uh, on dinner. Or it sets dinner off. Uh, but I mean, if you're serving, if you're serving, uh, you know, grilled steak and baked potatoes, and you say, you know, a bottle of wine, a great bottle of wine really makes dinner. That's not really true. The chef makes the dinner. The beef makes the dinner. I mean, who creates the dinner? What is the substance of the dinner? And we can get into a conversation about Aristotle's four causes. Um, and I interpreted the quote for a long time. I mean, the clothes make the man like the, the clothes really finish a man off. They're the cherry on top. They're what hold everything together. Maybe you could say that, like a great bottle of wine really holds together a dinner. And the clothes hold the man together. But the longer I mull over the quote, the more I think that that's not what the word make means. That clothes make the man, not like a bottle of wine makes dinner. They don't just hold everything together. I would also say that clothes don't instantaneously make the man. The word that I, I like better, and I'm willing to live with a proverb, of course, but the word I like better to interpret the word make is build. The clothes build the man. And I think, I don't want to change the proverb, but I think that building or creating is what's underneath the word make. That if you, that if you, you know, pull up the edges on, of, of the word make, lift it out of the proverb to see what's underneath, it's really the concept of creation or 
construction, the clothes construct the man. And creation and building take a long time. It's not instantaneous. Now, if you put a man in a suit who's not accustomed to wearing a suit, he will immediately begin to act differently. But the results that you get from a man in a suit after one hour are different than the results you get in a man wearing a suit for years. That the longer the man wears the suit, the more the suit constructs him and conforms him and assembles him. So clothes might have an immediate impact on someone, but that impact lasts and, and expands over time so that over time the man fills the suit, but, but by a gradual expansion, by a maturation and a, and a spiritual growth, the suit becomes a thing that a man lives in and makes himself comfortable with. Uh, because a suit is not comfortable when you put it on. Maybe that's another important thing to understand about the quote, clothes make the man, but you're not gonna like new clothes the moment you put them on. Any clothes that are capable of making you, you're gonna like the way you look, but they're going to be a pain in the neck. Anything with the power to conform you to something higher and better is going to be uncomfortable. This is maybe the draw of a uniform, that a uniform looks good, but it doesn't feel good. At least not at first. The clothes make the man. I also want to say that in addition to the clothes building or creating the man over the course of time, that what clothes do is the clothes don't make the personality of the man. And that's, I think that that's really significant. It's not the clothes make the personality, it's the clothes make the kind of man. So we could paraphrase the quote or the proverb, clothes make the man, say the clothes build the man into a kind of person. The clothes make the policeman, the clothes make the postman, the clothes make the lawman, the clothes make the butcher, the clothes make the chef. That's that's the kind of clothes we're talking about. Now, um, there's this negative side to this quote as well, which is that if you don't have any clothes that make you, if you don't ever wear anything that calls you to be something greater than you are, then there is an aspect of formality that will be absent in your spirit. And I think maybe this is why, you know, another proverb that I think is related to this, clothes make the man, is women love a man in uniform. I like that proverb. I think that that proverb does a great job explaining the clothes make the man. Why do women love a man in uniform? Because a man in uniform obeys someone. A man in uniform is under someone's authority. A man in uniform can't do whatever he wants. Women like a man who is governed. He's easier to trust. A man in uniform is not rogue. He answers to someone. And uniforms also tend to accompany kinds of men. 
We know a postman by his uniform. We know a policeman by his uniform. We know a priest by his uniform. Women love a kind of man. They love a man who's uh, a member of some larger fraternity or some larger institution that vouches for him. He's trustworthy. An institution has trusted this man to represent it. Therefore, he seems more trustworthy. He's a kind of person, which means he recognizes that there's a difference between normal and abnormal behavior, which is not possible if you don't believe in kinds of people. If you don't believe in kinds of people, then there's nothing normal or abnormal. But a woman can trust a man in uniform because a uniform subtly implies that human nature is real. And that's, a, that's an, a, maybe a, a tangential connection, but it's there. A uniform implies order. I noticed this back in the earliest years of my career when I still gave tests and quizzes in the classroom. I've taught both of the classical Christian schools that I've taught at over the last 13 years have required students to dress up one day a week. Uh, actually, both schools now require students to dress up on Friday. So they have their common uniforms and then their formal uniform. And I recognized early in my career when I still gave tests and quizzes in the classroom that when I gave tests and quizzes on formal dress days, my students just did better. You want, man, if you want free, if you want free points on tests, just give tests on days that students wear their blazers and their ties as opposed to their polo shirts. Guaranteed, you're going to get five to ten points better out of everyone if you give those tests on days when they have to dress up because they think higher of themselves. They look better. The uniform calls them to act differently, think differently. Just puts the mind within a higher realm of thought. When I got my first job teaching in a classical school, this is back in 2008, I was just graduating college. I graduated college in 2008, which was nine years after I graduated from high school. Graduated college with a bachelor's, so I'll just throw that out there. I got a job teaching at a classical Christian school, and I graduated from college, and I was going to move. My wife and I are going to move from uh, Moscow, Idaho, to Pensacola, Florida, where I'm going to start this new job teaching in a classical school. And when I graduated from college, my parents threw me a party. And at the graduation party, my father and mother gave me a gift. They gave me $1,500, which was far and away the largest cash gift I had ever received in my life. And I still remember what I bought with that money. What I bought with that money was incredibly important. For my whole life, I would say that that, that $1,500 had a lasting impact on my very soul. 
And that's because I spent that money well. When you give somebody a lot of money, I suppose that there's a temptation to fritter it away. You can spend the first hundred on trinkets or what have you and not feel that guilty because you have a lot left over. But because my father gave me this money and it was attached to my graduation and I was about to enter my career, I felt this incredible weight to spend this money well. So the first thing I bought with this money was a laptop, which I really needed. And a laptop's never going to change anyone's life. Uh, I think that the laptop I bought was seven or eight hundred dollars. The other thing I bought, I bought at a Nordstrom. The other thing I bought was a pair of shoes. I bought a pair of shoes made by Hermenahildo Zenia. And the model of the shoe was uh, a Bigiato. I still have the box for these shoes in my room. The shoes no longer exist. But I still have the box. And I've looked online on eBay to try to find another one of these pairs of shoes. Um, but no one has one for sale. I don't think that the company makes them anymore. I bought this pair of shoes at Nordstrom. This was a $600 pair of shoes. And they were on sale. I bought them for, I think, $250. It was the most expensive article of clothing I had ever bought at the age of 27. It was far and away the most expensive article of clothing I'd ever bought. Uh, at the same time I bought those, I also bought another pair of shoes for $200. A pair of um, Ferragamo brown lace-ups. Still have those. But the Armenahildo Zenia lace-ups were my favorite. They were beautiful. Two-tone leather. Um, and this is a kind of company, maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't, but if you're flipping through a copy of GQ magazine, you might find an advertisement for Ermenahildo Zenia. And I knew that when I bought them. And it was the first article of clothing, not only the most expensive article of clothing I'd ever bought, but it was the highest like, physical object I ever owned. Like, like in terms of high culture, I had never owned anything at this level. And I took these shoes with me to Florida, where I was going to start the job that would turn into my career. I, I loved these shoes with a passion. Every time I put on these shoes, I shined them. Every time I took them off, I shined them. And that was true for probably the first five years I owned. These were shoes that were these shoes were nice enough that I had them resold three times. And every time I put on these shoes, what was communicated to me in putting on these shoes was you're an adult now, which in our day and age is a message that's difficult to get into the head of a 27-year-old guy. 27 just does not feel like adulthood anymore. Our, 
our society still sells toys to people who are 27. Like, you walk into a Barnes & Noble, we sell action figures to people that are 27. But these shoes said to me, you're an adult. And every time I put them on, there was a kind of gravity that I felt in walking around in them because you couldn't not notice these shoes. Like I probably got, I got more comments on these shoes than I've ever gotten on anything else I've ever put on myself. Like complete strangers would tell me, wow, those are beautiful shoes. I, I got that comment on a regular basis when I wore those shoes out of the house. Those shoes told me you're an adult and that adulthood was a thing that you had to keep track of. That, that adulthood was this thing that had to be meticulously cared for. Adulthood was costly and it was fragile. Because these shoes were incredibly well made, but I still perceived them as, as delicate because I didn't want any harm to come to these shoes. Now, it's a difficult task to live in Florida and own nice shoes because it rains cats and dogs, you know, basically every afternoon in Florida for, you know, six or seven months out of the year, if not more. Which meant that many times I was getting off of work about the time that it was beginning to rain. Now, I would carry a garbage bag around with me, and if I had to get from uh, you know, the school to my car in the rain, I'd take those shoes off, put them in a bag, put the bag in my backpack or my satchel, take my socks off, and walk barefoot through the rain so that nothing happened to these shoes. If these shoes got damaged, if they got scuffed up, if they got all, they looked bad, there was a period of time, maybe like in my first and second year at the school, where I thought, like, these shoes were like talismanic. Like, without these shoes, I'm nothing. I, I may have never said that to myself out loud, but my meticulous care of them was born of a feeling that I would lose my status as an adult without these. That if I had to go back to some $70 pair of black Kenneth Cole, um, uh, you know, some kind of cheap pair of shoes, the kind that I'd owned for years that lasted a year, that I didn't want to last longer than a year because I tired of them or because they, they came to look bad uh, because they were scuffed up or dirty or what have you. That if I had to go back to those shoes, that I would have lost this talisman that had brought me into adulthood. That I was now the kind of person who needed clothes of distinction. I took care of those shoes for nine years, I think. Those shoes lasted me nine years. And by the time I needed to replace them, I was well established enough in the world that I could afford to buy another pair that was in the same ballpark. Not as nice, 
Still, those shoes were the nicest thing I've ever owned. And by the time I was 36 or 37, well, I could buy another decent pair of shoes. And I, but, but that's because I had grown into these shoes. That I had gradually absorbed the dignity that these shoes conferred on me. And I, had, I never forgot in owning those shoes where they came from. That they came from this gift from my parents. And the gift was this introduction into adulthood itself. Now that you're not in college anymore, not a kid anymore. There's no possible way you can look at yourself as a kid anymore. After you're married and you graduate college, if you don't see yourself as an adult then, you're toast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.